0: Good morning, everybody. Um, Joanne is going to come and read the Bible for us in just a moment. So if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going from verse 21 through to verse 30.
1: Good morning again, everybody. So for those that don't know me, I'm Joanne. Um, I'm married to Andrew, who did the prayer earlier on, and we're from the President Park Life Group. So I've got the privilege of reading to us this morning from Matthew 5, uh, verse 21 to 30. That's Matthew 5, verse 21 to 30. You have heard it said, that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... into hell. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Uh, Won't you just bow your heads and join me in a word of prayer? Father, once again, we approach you with nothing but um, our spiritual destitution. We have nothing to bring, Lord. Too often we lose sight of that fact. Um, But we acknowledge our need now and pray that you would meet with us. In your mercy, meet with us. And show us your true self, Lord. Open our blind eyes. Help us to see you as you truly are. Through your Son and in the power of your Spirit, cut our hearts afresh, Lord, this morning. That we might truly be um, circumcised in heart to you, set apart for you. um, Be reminded of your grace to us and your goodness to us and how you've made us a people for yourself. Help us to see all these wonderful truths and to rejoice in them and then to go out and live in them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we do need to pick up where we left off last week because actually the rest of chapter 5, and we're in Matthew chapter 5, the rest of this chapter is really built on top of last week's passage. So verses 17 through 20. It all flows out of there. And what were the message in those verses? Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. He is what the law and the prophets were always anticipating. He is the long-awaited king of God's kingdom. The Old Testament was promise. Jesus is the fulfillment. The Old Testament was departure. Jesus is the destination. The Old Testament was all about God's love for his people and his desire that they should be a people of love. Jesus makes it happen. Jesus is God's perfect love for man, and man's perfect love for God, and man's perfect love for man, in the flesh, walking around, if you like. And so the law, which was all about love and how to express it, has an enduring purpose in the kingdom of heaven. Firstly, righteousness under the law is the only way into the kingdom. Which is another way of saying perfect love is the only way into the kingdom. Which is another way of saying Jesus Christ is the only way into the kingdom. The ongoing purpose of the law is to point us to our desperate need for the king and to promote love in his kingdom. All of that is to say, verse 20, that in the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. It must. Why? Because their righteousness was legalistic, superficial, hypocritical law-keeping. The kind that makes keeping the law about taking for yourself rather than giving to God and giving to his people, to your neighbor. The kind that ignores the God behind the law, ignores his purpose for the law, and makes the law into a dead letter. If my goal is simply to keep the law so that God and others will be indebted to me, then I'm always going to be looking for loopholes and shortcuts and how to get away with the bare minimum. I'm always going to be aiming for the bare minimum, and if I can get away with less, brilliant. My, my whole goal is to take. So why would I give more than the law requires? Jesus says, if you do not exceed that approach to the law, you have no place in the kingdom. That approach is why the Apostle Paul says of the law, The letter kills, and the Spirit gives life. The letter kills. Go that way, and you will die. Verse 20. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Everything that follows in chapter 5 is Jesus explaining and illustrating that statement. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now let me explain what I mean. And that's what he does with the rest of chapter 5. In the rest of this chapter, Jesus takes the second tablet of the law. Remember there were two tablets. Commandments 1 to 5, Commandments 6 to 10. He takes the second tablet of the law and he uses it to show us what kingdom righteousness is and how kingdom righteousness exceeds The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, the righteousness of dead-letter moralism, if you like. He does it, Jesus illustrates and shows and explains, he does it using the same formula over and over and over again. And to try and illustrate the formula, I want us just to imagine dead-letter moralism or the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, I want us to imagine it as a tree. Alright? What does Jesus do? Over and over and over again this is what he does. He points to the traditional fruit masking the poisonous root that ends in death and then he shows us the life of the kingdom. So the traditional fruit masking the poisonous root that ends in death and then he gives us the life of the kingdom. That That's the basic formula. Let's have a look. We start with the sixth commandment, with murder. Look at the traditional fruit. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So there it is. The traditional Jewish teaching on the sixth commandment. Perfectly reasonable. Don't kill anybody and you'll be right with God. On that measure, the scribes and the Pharisees were right with God. Everyone sitting here is right with God, as far as I know. <laughs> On the other hand, those convicted of murder will face judgment. So there are the good people, and then there are the murderers. Simple. Until Jesus exposes the poisonous root. Look at verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. We've had a couple of church uh, weddings this weekend. did you know that if you are married, then statistically speaking, the person most likely to kill you is sitting next to you. Do you know that? There's a fun fact for a wedding sermon. And there's a good reason to stay single, for those of you who still are. Please stay single. The statistics are in your favor. But what does that tell us? What does that tell us? It tells us that you don't just wake up one day and murder someone. It tells us that murder takes time. You don't just get the fruit. The fruit starts out as a root. It starts as a seed. It germinates. It slowly begins to grow. And so you can have seemingly wonderful fruit on the tree, but if the root structure is dead, soon enough that fruit will rot and die. Murder begins in the heart. It starts out as anger. It grows into contempt, into bitterness, into hatred. It takes years and seasons before it flowers and produces its full fruit, its full harvest. Fruit that looks good for food and is pleasing to the eye, but poisonous fruit fruit that leads to death. Jesus' point is this. Superficially, the tree of our righteousness can look healthy. There's fruit on the tree. But that counts for very little if there is death in the fruit because there's death in the root. You haven't murdered anyone you probably haven't even ever assaulted anyone. Besides the occasional speeding fine, your criminal record is clear. It's clear. But you can still be full of hatred. Full of hatred. And in the eyes of God, who sees the root structure of your soul, who doesn't just see the behavior but sees all the way down into the desires and the motives of your heart. You are not a healthy tree. In fact, you are in grave danger because a poisonous root ends in death. Verse 22. But I say to you, That everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're still on the way, going on the way with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. If you harbor and nurture that anger in your heart, you may not be in prison now, but you will be later. And that is a prison you will never escape. If you leave that bitterness to fester, in the end, you will be liable to the hell of fire. What the Bible calls the second death. Basically just full and final separation from God for eternity. Utter God-forsakenness. And this is the reality that dead-letter moralism hides from us. That superficial, hypocritical law-keeping hides from us. In some ways, we are in more danger in our comfortable, suburban, middle-class self-righteousness than the murderer in CMax. Why? Well, because at least he knows that there's murder in him. We are totally oblivious. You think you have absolutely nothing in common with the murder conflict. It's how we all think. But in God's eyes, you are dying from the same disease. At least the convict knows it. Not only do you not recognize the poison that is killing you, this is how we are. We actually enjoy it. We think we are entitled to our anger. We like the taste of that poison. We roll it around in our mouths. We savor it. We stew in it. Jesus says that kind of righteousness, righteousness, ends in death. But there is, thanks be to God, there is an alternative. There is an antidote. There is life in the kingdom. What does that look like? Verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. Leave it there before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to court with him lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the God and you be put in prison. If you are engaged in the height of all morality, right, like coming to church, worshipping God, if you're engaged in the height of all morality and you're at the temple, you give that up. You give it up for the sake of reconciliation. You give it up for the sake of love. Which is, of course, after all, the very spirit of the law. The law is nothing but a mere servant of love. There is no righteousness in just not killing your neighbor. That's what we've reduced righteousness to. I just haven't killed my neighbor. You must love your neighbor. The kingdom breathes life into the law by revealing its true original purpose. There's a strange twist in this preaching from Jesus. I don't know if you noticed this. It's It's almost lost in the detail, but it's a strange twist. We think, given the logic of what he's saying, that he's going to call us to deal with anger in our own hearts. But he doesn't do that, does he? If you look closely. He calls us to deal with the anger in our brother's heart. Did you see that? Verse 24, your brother has something against you. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser. In other words, the other person is angry. We are called to take action to deal with the murder in our brother's heart. The offending party must forego all things, including temple worship. He must not rest until he has dealt with the anger in his brother's heart. That's love. That's the purpose of the law. When we're in the kingdom, that's where the law will take us. Because the law takes us to Christ. And that's how he was. And is. The full intent of the sixth commandment was not just the end of murder. It was harmony between brothers and sisters. Flourishing in our relationships. That's the full intent of the sixth commandment. True kingdom righteousness demands that we don't just allow our neighbor to live, but that we actively pursue peace wherever we can, because that's who God is. And that's what he does. And that's what he's made us. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called children of God. That's not just a nice, happy title. That's who he makes us. His children. We bear the family likeness. We get busy with the family business. What is the family business? Peacemaking. That's the sixth commandment. Let's have a look at the seventh. We start again with the traditional fruit. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. There it is, the traditional Jewish teaching on the seventh commandment. Once again, perfectly reasonable. And the dead letter moralist says, wonderful. I have not had sexual intercourse with another person. My obligations to my spouse are met. Seventh commandment. Tick. Three to go. All good until Jesus exposes the poisonous root. 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, you can't separate the fruit from the root. It's one tree. And God sees the whole tree. He sees all the way down into the root structure of your soul. You may never have had sex with another person. But if you have been unfaithful in your heart, then you have broken faith. You've broken the marriage covenant. A lustful look is the root of full-blown adultery. It's, it's like the relationship between the acorn and the oak tree. If the oak tree is full-blown adultery, then looking with lustful intent is the acorn. I want to take a bit of a detour here just on the nature of sin. Jesus is teaching that sin is a disease before it's a symptom. Sin is in you before it shows up on you. It is deep within your nature before it shows up in your behavior. Uh, Jesus' teaching, this teaching of his on, on sin, helps us to formulate what we could call a biblical doctrine of sin. That's just a fancy way of saying what the Bible has to say and teach about sin. And it's an incredibly important subject area, incredibly important. The doctrine of sin touches almost everything in the Christian life and everything in the Christian worldview. If you don't understand sin, if we don't understand sin, we are never going to understand God. And we're never going to understand ourselves. And we're never going to understand our salvation. And we are certainly never going to understand the world around us. Never. If we think of sin as simply the bad things that people do, we are constantly going to be falling into the trap of othering. You know, the problem with the world and with my life will always be these people over there. These ones. You know these people? We all have a category called these people. These people. Black people. White people. Young people. Old people. Female people. Male people. We've all got that category, these people. Their sins. The bad things they do make them the bad people they are. And they are the problem. When in reality, if we sit under the teaching of Jesus... It becomes obvious that the only thing separating us from them are the symptoms and how we diagnose the symptoms. Everyone thinks, if we're honest with ourselves, we're all prone to think this way. Everybody thinks my symptoms are mild, okay? My symptoms are harmless. But that over there, that is serious. That, and that's, that's actually quite disgusting. And it needs to be, that needs to be dealt with. Yes, yes, there's sin in my life, but it's pretty much, you know, it's fine. It's practically nothing but that. That's how we think. all comes down to how you classify the symptoms. So some of us stress sins of commission, the things you do. Others will stress sins of omission, the things you don't do that you should do. Some of us will stress personal sin. Others will stress public sin. Some will shout loudly about sexual morality and be quick to damn anyone who's lax in that area. They are the problem. Other people are active in social justice and are scathing of those who are not. They are the problem. Friends, this is a bit like one man who has a cough and another man who's sneezing arguing over who's spreading the germs. And Jesus says, sorry, gents, but you both have the flu. The doctrine of sin won't let us hate our brother just because he has different symptoms and we don't like his symptoms. We're all suffering from the same disease. Nobel laureate Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he said it like this. If only it were all so simple if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart. Wasn't that John's testimony this morning? I'm part of the problem. Jesus is teaching us that there is an alienation from God called sin. Not simply the bad things those people over there do, it's an alienation from God. It's in all of us, it's in your root structure. Your fruit can mask it, but it's there. It's in your heart at the level of deepest desire. Your behavior can mask it, but it's there. And the poisonous root once again has a deadly end. Twice, verse 29, verse 30, Jesus says that if you don't deal with the lust in your heart, your whole body will be thrown into hell. Righteousness does not come simply from refraining from the physical act of adultery. That is dead-letter morality. That's the letter that kills. But, once again, thanks be to God, there is life in the kingdom. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Is using a military metaphor. So in ancient times, in the armies of the ancient world, your right eye would be particularly important because your left eye was covered by your shield. So if I'm holding my shield, you know, I conceal my left eye behind the shield, my line of sight is only through my right eye. So your right eye is particularly precious. The same, in the same way your right hand in, in that culture was favored for almost everything. Particularly precious, especially precious. The idea here. Is that by the life and power of the kingdom, you would be prepared to sacrifice anything, anything precious, for the sake of something more precious. To maintain and promote living that honors the king. You would sacrifice anything precious for that which is more precious. The honor of the king. This is a righteousness that goes well beyond dead-letter moralism. In fact, it's in a a different category entirely. It's in a different category because it's not motivated by self-interest and self-justification. My inner lawyer, my desire to prove my moral worth to myself and everyone around me. It's not motivated by any of that. It's motivated by love. And in the case of the seventh commandment, in the case of marriage, love for your God and love for your spouse. Love for the society around you that flourishes when you flourish, when your marriage flourishes. As a citizen of the kingdom, when we are given eyes to see the love of God to his people in and through the seventh commandment, we actually become agents of his righteousness. We will be prepared to sacrifice anything for him and his honor. Driven as we are by his love for us. So you'll stop watching your favorite series. Because it provokes lust in your heart. You might even close your Netflix account completely. You would give up on that friendship. You know the one I'm talking about, that one thats you find so stimulating and exciting But you'd give up on it because you've noticed it's become just a little bit flirtatious. Just a little bit flirtatious. You would give up on those WhatsApp exchanges because that private chat feels a bit like a room for two or a table for two in a private booth. And that table is reserved for you and your spouse. You would even ask for help with your porn addiction. You know that it's going to mean, to a certain extent, giving up your reputation. But you would do it. You would bear the cost of the embarrassment. You would bear the cost of the shame. you gladly give up on gorging yourself on that poisonous fruit because you know there's no love there. When you watch porn, you are not loving God. You're not loving your wife. You're not loving the people that made those videos or the society ravaged by them. And so you will sacrifice anything to get the help you need. That's life in the kingdom. Motivated by love. Let's just review. Jesus is preaching against the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. It's a righteousness he calls hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is living a double life. Your fruit looks good, but there's only death in your root structure. Your behavior tells one story, but there's a very different story playing out in your heart of hearts. The scribes and the Pharisees were hypocrites. They kept the law as if it was a dead letter, as if it was a thing in itself. They did the bare minimum. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't slept with my neighbor's wife. I'm good. I'm right with God. I'm right with my neighbor. I am righteous. The worst part is that they were proud of their dead letter moralism. Because they did it. They made themselves righteous. They kept the law when others couldn't. They were on top of the moral pile. They had their symptoms, at least the politically incorrect symptoms, under control. My favorite church billboard reads as follows. This church isn't full of hypocrites. There's always room for more. So let's not judge the judges. Let's not be self-righteous about the self-righteous. We are Pharisees and scribes. You don't have to look around for them. Just look, look down. We are the Pharisees and the scribes. The natural state of our hearts is to want to control our righteousness. But Jesus is calling us to something else. If self-righteousness is hypocrisy, kingdom righteousness is integrity. The fruit and the root are one thing. They are one. The heart and the behavior are one. That's kingdom righteousness. Okay, but how? That's the question, isn't it? How? How does that happen? If our hearts always and everywhere tend towards hypocrisy... How do we get this life of integrity? How do we get into the kingdom and live in the kingdom? We go back to the beginning of the sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So Jesus makes it crystal clear from the beginning, the kingdom belongs to those who know they have no right to be there. They hunger and thirst for righteousness precisely because they know they don't have any righteousness of their own. They recognize they can't produce it for themselves. The kingdom is not for those who are proud in spirit. It is for those who are poor in spirit. For those who have nothing, no righteousness to present to the king, nothing. It's for those who come empty handed. Now, what is going to humble us to that extent? To that profound level of humi- humility that you just can't manufacture, you can't fake right down into the root structure of your soul. What is going to humble us there? What is going to move us from being self-satisfied in our own righteousness to hungering, genuinely hungering and thirsting after a true righteousness, a real righteousness, a righteousness not our own? What is going to do that in us? And once again, all we can do is throw ourselves on the mercy of the King. Because there's nothing else to do. If you want to get into God's kingdom, you have to show up without a ticket. You have to show up without a ticket and ask Jesus to get you in. Because he's made a way. We've just been listening to him teach on murder and lust and where they lead. My brothers and sisters, he knew where they led. Because he experienced it for himself. He was murdered by his brothers, cast into the hell of fire for our anger. And he did it to pay all debts, to reconcile, to make peace between God and man and a man and his brother. He's the great peacemaker. Cut out your eye, cut out your hand, cut off your hand. He's the one who was disfigured and dismembered and cast into hell for our lust. He was faithful to the very end in utter purity to his bride, the church, to deal with our unfaithfulness. And here's the extraordinary thing. His peacemaking actually transforms us into instruments of his peace. His sacrifice of everything precious transforms us into a faithful people. We are changed at the root structure. And it's his spirit that bears good fruit in our lives. You see, in the kingdom... We're no longer scrounging and scraping to do as little as possible in order to declare ourselves right with God and better than these people. Instead we look we look intently. We gaze intently into the law. We see it fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We see that law fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and we follow him into a thousand opportunities to love. That's the power of kingdom righteousness, his righteousness. You are now an ambassador for the king. You're an ambassador for the king. In the power of the Spirit, go and live like one. Where do I start? Where do I start? You can start the other side of those doors. If you've caused any offense, don't let anger fester in your brother's heart. His soul is at stake. Her soul is at stake. Go and make amends. Say you're sorry. Not for the sake of your conscience. For her sake. Out of love. To kill the anger in her heart. Reconcile. If you're tempted towards sexual sin, then make the sacrifice you need to make today. Make it today. Cancel the account. Block the number. Get the help you need. Do whatever it takes. Make whatever make whatever sacrifice. Sacrifice whatever it takes. Your king has done the same for you. And so now in thanksgiving and love and by faith. You are empowered to go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the only righteousness there is. We thank you that it comes to us as a free gift of your grace. He is our righteousness. And we praise you for him. Help us to read your word and to look deep into the law. Give us eyes to find our Lord Jesus Christ there. And then empower us to follow him into a life of love. Father, we especially ask for help in the area of reconciliation. We are, all of us, carrying hurt in one way or another. We find it so hard to humble ourselves and to say sorry. Please help us kill anger by being quick to apologize from the heart and deeply committed to forgiveness because you forgave us first and it cost you everything. Father, help us in the area of sexual sin, we pray. Help us to make radical sacrifices, any sacrifice we need to make because the righteousness you have given us is so precious and because sin only leads to death. Father, help us. Help us by your Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.